Hey, my name's Aaron. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, this is not going to be a rough one. I'm, I'm glad you guys are here, and this is going to be great. Uh, we're going to look at the book of James together. And uh, we've been looking at James for several months, and this is our final, uh, our final sermon from the book of James. And so if you would, grab your Bibles, and we're going to turn to James chapter 5. We're going to wrap this up, and uh, some really important stuff that James has to say to us today. James chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, um, if you don't own a Bible or if you just don't have it with you, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We would love for you to to turn to page 1013 in that Bible and join us uh, as we look at this. If you literally don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one. Let that be our gift to you because we, more than anything, would love for you to have a Bible of your own and read it and investigate these things yourself. Um, So I got to tell you before we get into this, uh, today we're going to cover James Chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And um, I probably should have just, I, I should probably just let this go, but I, I can't. Um, we are not going to cover verses 19 and 20. Um, we just don't. It, didn't, it doesn't fit with today's sermon, and we're moving on to a new series next week. And so if you are a completist, if you are somebody who is like, I really, I am sorry. I'm very, very sorry. We are not going to actually finish every verse from the book of James. Um, I thought maybe what you could do is you could go home, you could read those verses, you could write your own sermon, um, and you could preach it to your stuffed animals, and we'll be good, okay? So that's what we'll do from there. But uh, for today, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Here we go. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The word of the Lord. All right, so clearly, uh, our passage this morning is about prayer. And I just have to be honest, um, for me personally, to, to, to come up in front and to speak to you about prayer, um, that fills me with a little bit of anxiety because, honestly, um, this is not a topic that I consider myself an expert on. Okay, what I'm saying is this, I, I struggle with prayer. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not something that comes naturally to me. It's not something that I feel like I just do it the way I'm supposed to or as often as I should or any of those things. And I'll bet, look, I, I bet you feel the same way, a lot of you, that when we come to the topic of prayer, that that can be, for some reason, what, what seems like it should just be this natural, vital, everyday part of our experience as a Christian, it feels intimidating, it feels, it feels difficult. Or, and again, just being completely honest, sometimes it almost feels like a boring topic. Sometimes we think about prayer as like the thing we have to get through to get to the stuff that we're actually interested in. The prospect of praying for long periods of time for many of us sounds like almost torture. Prayer to us just becomes this, and maybe not everybody, okay, and I'm not, maybe this is not you, but for many of us, the idea of prayer um, it's just hard. Why is that? Because again, it seems like it should be something that's just natural and, and vital and vibrant. I've been thinking about it a lot as I prepared this week. I really think a lot of the blame and a lot of the problem, um, I blame Harry Potter. I really do. Um, and let me explain why. Harry Potter or any magician or sorcerer, or witch, or whatever you want to say. They say the magic words, and whatever they want to happen, happens. Right? And in in all those stories, and all those movies, and all those books, it's all about you have to have the right magic words, and if you say the right words, and sometimes do the right motions to go with the words, when you say them, then whatever you're trying to do works. And the only way it doesn't work is if you say the words wrong, or you say the wrong words, or you're not doing the right motion, or whatever, but it's your problem because you didn't say it right. You didn't do it right. And as long as you say it or do it right, then you get the result you're looking for. 
And so you point your wand and you say the words and poof, it happens. And you're struggling and you're pointing your wand or you're doing whatever and it's not happening. It's you and you just got to figure it out. And I think a lot of us, as ridiculous as this sounds, and saying it out loud, it sounds really ridiculous, but to be honest, a lot of us, that's how we approach prayer. We've got whatever it is that we want to have happen, and so we try to say the magic words, and we try to say the right words, and we try to do the, say it right, do it right, whatever. And whether it happens or not, we're like, well, maybe I didn't say it right, or maybe I didn't do it right, or maybe, and and so whenever we approach the topic of prayer, or we read a book about prayer, or we listen to a sermon about prayer, a lot of times what we're looking for is different words, or different motions, or how do I, right? And we want some clear instructions to say the right words to get the things that we want. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I want you to think about how most of us pray. We start out with, dear God, like we're writing a letter or something, but we say, dear God, and we've got to say, Heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, whatever it is, we've got to start with that, right? And we have to end with, in Jesus' name we pray. See? And those are our, our magic words, right? And, we, and, if, and look, and, and most of us don't even know what the word amen means, right? And when I was a kid growing up, all I knew was that if I didn't say amen, my prayer wasn't done and it wouldn't work. You have to say it at the end. If you got interrupted praying, you would at least try to say amen real quick to just, you know, close it all off. Otherwise, you're walking around with this open prayer hanging out there, and what's going to happen? <clears throat> Unfortunately, and as much as it pains me to say this, um, Harry Potter's not real. And there's no such thing as magic words, and prayer is not the process of us saying just the right words to get God to do what we want him to do. But because we approach it that way, or we think that way, or we've been taught that way, a lot of us develop very, very worldly attitudes about prayer. Worldliness. We've talked about it all throughout the book of James. I'm sure you could even say the definition right along with me. As we've talked and as James talks about worldliness, we understand worldliness is our attempt to get the blessings of God apart from a relationship with God. And can you think of a better definition than the way most of us approach prayer? We want blessings from God, and we'll do whatever it is that we need to do, say whatever we need to say, manipulate things in whatever way we can manipulate things to get from God the things we want from him without actually having to know or be near him. And so we develop worldly attitudes, but I think as we look at this, that there are actually two different ways that we can have worldly attitudes toward prayer. And they seem like exact opposites, but they come from the same place. And the first one we've talked about, it's in chapter 4, James talks about how we can pray selfishly. We, we pray for things, and he says you ask for things, but you don't get the things you ask for because you ask in the wrong way. And again, that sounds like, oh, I'm not using the right magic words. But what he says is, no, you're asking the wrong way, meaning you're, you're being selfish. You're trying to, to get things to, to consume for your own passions, for your own desire. You just want for you, and it's all about you. It's all about me. And that's totally a worldly way to pray. But there's another way, and it's sneaky, and it's more subtle. But this is what James, uh, 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 um, this is what James deals with here in this passage at the end of James chapter 5. And it may actually be even more damaging to the way that we pray. Because it's entirely worldly when we pray with zero expectation. We pray, we say words, but we do not believe that anything will come of it. We go to God because we feel like we're supposed to, because we feel like we have to. But in our hearts and in our minds, we do not believe that anything we say is going to have any impact on anything that happens in the world around us. 
And I struggle with this. I personally, I struggle with this. And I, I wrap it up in what I, I hope and I believe is good theology, but my good theology gets in the way of the truth of God's word, if that makes any sense. That sounds totally paradoxical, but here's what we do. Here's what I do. I say, well, God is totally sovereign. He's completely in control of everything that happens. And he has his perfect will, and he's going to do what he's going to do because God is in control. And so when I go to him and I pray and I ask him for anything, I go with this, and I call it humility, of saying, God, I would like this, but, but if you don't want to do that, then you do whatever you want to do because you're God, and I just, and, and God, if it's your will, and we use all these, and they sound super spiritual. If it's your will, God, if you want to, God, would you please, but if you don't, I understand, and it's okay, and I'm sorry for even asking, and I'm just going to go over here now. I'm sorry I bothered you. And I go and I pray, and I ask, but I'm not really asking. And I have absolutely no expectation that God's going to do what I ask for. And it comes to a place where I have so little trust and so little faith that God's going to listen to my prayer and answer my prayer that I barely even pray. And I think some of you could, could, could understand this, and this would be your story too. You prayed and you prayed, but you didn't really believe, and you just got to the point where you were just like, why am I even praying? What's even the point? You still pray in the sense that you still say these words, but you're not really even asking for anything. You could almost call it like a a functional agnosticism. I believe there's a God, but I really don't believe he's going to interact in my life in almost any way. Now here's the problem with that. As much as Theologically, I confirm it is true. God is in control, and he has his will, and he's going to do what is right and what is good, and all those things are true. When I read the New Testament, I see over and over and over again that God tells me to pray, and he tells me to ask for things. And he tells me to ask with expectation. And he tells me to ask for big things. And he says that he answers my prayers. And if I'm going to take what he says in the New Testament to be true, then I have to believe that he wants me to ask him for big things. And I have to believe that he's not telling me I have to come to him apologizing for praying. But that's what I do, and that's what a lot of us do. We come to God, and we've stripped ourselves of any belief that he's going to answer our prayers, and so we say words in a way that we're protecting ourselves against the possibility of being disappointed or being let down And so we try to pray the safest, most risk-averse prayers we possibly can. And then James chapter 5 comes along, and he basically says, that's just not right. Let's work through this and see what he says. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In other words, whether things are good or things are bad, pretty much all of life, I mean, that that encompasses pretty much everything. Pray. This kind of echoes uh, what Paul says elsewhere. Pray without ceasing. Always to be praying. Prayer is not just, and this is, again, this is the thing. Prayer is not. You have to do the right actions and you have to closet yourself off and seclude yourself and get away. There are times when you do that, but there's also a time where you're just constantly, constantly, always in a conversation with God, and that's what James is talking about here. Just 
pray in every situation, regardless of what it is. Just be in an attitude of prayer. Be talking to God. Be constantly conversation with him. And that's, look, I'll be honest, that verse is okay. And I, if that were it, I think I'd be all right. But then he really starts to push in verse 14 to the part where I start to get less comfortable. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, let me explain why this starts to make me a little nervous. Because what James is saying in verse 14 is all those private prayers, all that silent prayer where it's safe, where nobody knows that you're praying those things. And so if, if it happens, it doesn't happen. Nobody knows. It was you and God, and that's all. In verse 14, he says, why don't you bring other people in? Why don't you make this public? Why don't you let it be known that you're praying for this? Why don't you go to the church and the leaders of the church and have them pray over you and make this not a personal, this is not private, this thing that you're praying for, that you're asking for, that you want to see God do? Why don't you put it out there and let it be known that you're asking God to do this? Well, I'll tell you why I don't do that. Because I don't want anybody to know I'm asking for it. Because if I don't get it, if it doesn't come through, if God doesn't come through, I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be ashamed. I'm going to feel like I'm a failure. But James says, no. Make it public. Let other people join you in your prayers. And the prayer of faith, verse 15, will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Do you have a hard time believing that verse? Is it difficult for you to think? I do, I do. Okay, I'm not accusing you. I'm letting you in on on how I work. Why do I have such a hard time believing that God's going to heal what might seem like an otherwise hopeless Physical, spiritual, relational, I don't even know. When he, look, James is saying, I mean, I'm just reading this, okay? Read this with me. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James is not talking the way I pray. I pray if, 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 maybe, sort of, kind of, just, you say just a lot when you pray. Just God, I just, just want to just come to you just right now and just, no, okay. Maybe if you want to, God, if it's okay, if you're not too busy, if it wouldn't stretch you too much. Look how James is talking. Will. He's definitive. That makes me really, really nervous. Because I have this disconnect. You know what's really funny about verse, uh, verse 15? It says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Most of us totally believe that. That God is capable and willing to forgive our sins if we ask. But the other part about healing the sick is where we get tripped up. Why? Is that so much harder? Is God really only in control of the spiritual realm, but not the physical realm? Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I want to pause before we go on. Because as I am talking about this, I am aware, and, and trust me, as I say all this, I'm even very cautious that I don't want to go here because this verse as, and this whole passage has been misused and abused in a way um, that I would actually call spiritually abusive to people. 
who are suffering, especially those who have illnesses at times and who have prayed, and God has chosen not to heal them in some way? Because people come to this and they say, well, here's the problem. It says the the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And it says that, that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And so here's what, and again, this is not what James is saying. This is not what James is saying, but here's how this gets taught sometimes. If you're sick, and if you pray and God doesn't heal you, it's because you're not good in some way. Either you didn't pray right, you didn't say the right magic words, or you have some sin, some major sin, and because of your sin, God won't heal you. You're not righteous enough. And even drawn out to its extreme conclusion, if you're sick at all, it's because of your own sin, and you just need to repent. And if you're not getting better, it's because of a problem with you. You don't have enough faith, and you're not a good enough person. That is not, not, not what James is saying here. Not at all. And in fact, as he goes on, in verse 17... He's actually saying the exact opposite. Because he starts talking about Elijah. And I want to tell you a little bit about Elijah. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So, you may or may not have heard of Elijah before. Let me give you a quick rundown on who Elijah was. Elijah was a prophet in ancient Israel. Okay, now he was a prophet at a time... um, and you can read about Elijah starting in 1 Kings chapter 17 in the Old Testament. Um, but I just want to talk about this part of his life that James talks about. Elijah started prophesying, um, came to be known during a time when there was a guy who was a king in Israel whose name was Ahab. Ahab was not a good king. Okay? As, fa- as a matter of fact, in the book of 1 Kings, he's described as being more wicked than all the kings who came before him combined. So he was, he was, he was bad. Okay? He was a bad king. He led the nation poorly. He led them away from God. Uh, the queen, his wife, was a woman named Jezebel. You may have heard of Jezebel, or you may have even just heard the name Jezebel used as an insult. That's how bad she was, that her name became an insult. Um, and she worshipped false gods, and when Ahab married her, he brought the worship of those false gods, Baal, Asherah, into Israel. And instead of worshipping Yahweh, the Israelites started to worship false gods, and it just led them further and further down this, this horrible path. So Elijah shows up. And there's something fascinating to me about the very beginning of Elijah's story, because most times when a prophet comes along, The Bible is very clear. God spoke to this person and told them to go and do this. God appointed this prophet to go and do this. In 1 Kings chapter 17, when Elijah first shows up, it just says, Elijah came and spoke to Ahab. And it doesn't start by saying that God told Elijah to go do this thing. Now, does that matter? I don't know, but here's what happened, and here's why I think this is interesting. Elijah shows up, and he talks to Ahab, and he says, it's not going to rain for three years. Now, that is a bold statement. A bold statement. Now we can interpret, we can read into that, that Elijah came and said that because God had told him to, but it doesn't say that. In fact, it says that Elijah came and said that to Ahab, and then after that, it talks about God speaking to Elijah. Again, We can interpret this. It's not entirely clear. But it almost sounds like, it almost sounds like Elijah went and told Ahab this before he directly heard from God that this is what was going to happen. Is it possible that Elijah just boldly made this incredibly strong statement trusting that God was going to do it? Now, it happened for three years, no rain. And it gets really bad. I mean, imagine a famine, especially in a 
completely agricultural society. No crops, livestock dying, abject poverty everywhere. Ahab desperately wants his nation to be restored. But he keeps clinging to the worship of these false gods. And so Elijah finally comes after three years and he says, here's what we need to do. We need to have a contest. A contest to settle definitively who is truly God, Baal or Yahweh. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to go to Mount Carmel. We're going to go on top of a mountain. We're going to go to a really, really public place. We're going to put this out where everybody can see it. We're not going to hide this. We're not going to do this privately and then based on the results, we'll decide whether we're going to go and tell people. We're going to put this up front so everybody sees it in real time as it's happening. And we're each going to build an altar and your guys are going to pray to Baal. I'm going to pray to God, to Yahweh, and we're going to see which one will light our altar on fire. And so Ahab agrees 450 prophets of Baal build an altar. Everybody shows up to watch. There is no hiding this. This is not private. Elijah's not in his prayer closet somewhere. He's laying this all out. If he's wrong, if Elijah prays and asks God to light his altar on fire and God doesn't do it, Elijah is dead, literally dead. And everybody in Israel will ridicule him, will ridicule his God. If this doesn't work, this is a disaster. So they build the altars. The prophets of Baal go first. And they start praying. They start saying their magic words. They start doing their rituals. And nothing happens. And so they try harder. They try different words. They try different rituals. They start cutting themselves. They start doing all the things that they've been taught that they're supposed to do. And their God doesn't do anything. And Elijah... Look, if this was me, if this was me, this never would have happened. So I can't say if this was me. But if, if, if it was me and it got to that point, I would just be totally silent. And I'd be sitting there like, man, I hope this isn't how it turns out for me. But not Elijah. He starts talking to them about how badly they're failing and about how their God's not showing up. He starts mocking them. He literally says, maybe your God's not doing this because he's going to the bathroom. He keeps drawing attention to what's going on, and they just keep praying and praying and praying, and nothing is happening. Now, I understand, look, as I tell these stories, these, these were not servants of God, okay? They, they were They were prophets of a false god. They were leading other people to worship a false god. So in that regard, no sympathy. But there's a little part of me that as I read this story this week, I kind of of felt a little bit bad for them. Because here they are in this really public place, and they're giving it everything, and nothing's happening. And I'll be honest, when I think about prayer, and when I think about praying boldly, and when I think about praying publicly, When I think about asking God to do something big, that's my fear. My fear is that I'm going to lay myself out on the line like the prophets of Baal did, and I'm going to get the same response they got. And you can say, and you should say, that says more about me than it does about God. But I can't help but wonder if that's why we don't pray more often for more big things. Because we're not 100% convinced that our God's going to show up. So then it's Elijah's turn. They go, they go hours and hours and hours of praying like this. You cannot accuse them of not praying seriously. 
But nothing happens. So Elijah, it's his turn. And Elijah, again, he just can't stop from making this as, as blatant and obvious as possible. He builds the altar, and then he says, we're going to up the level of difficulty here. And he soaks the altar with water. And he digs a trench around the altar, and he pours water all around the altar. And he says, we're going to ask for this thing to, to catch on fire, and it's soaking wet. We're making this completely and totally humanly impossible. And then he prays. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. This is Elijah's prayer. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This is a big request. (laughs) And it's big, and he puts it in terms that are so black and white. God, do this so people know you're God. You told me to do this. You're God. I'm just your servant. I'm just doing what you asked me to do, God. So please do it so that everybody will know this is you and this is who you are. And then he does. God does it. Fire. It says fire from heaven. I don't know and I can't picture and there's a million ways. This, I don't know if this literally they see flames come down. That would be awesome. Or if the whole thing starting up from the bottom, just that would be pretty awesome too, okay? I mean, I can't imagine a way this wouldn't be awesome. Um, the whole thing just boom. And it's gone. The, the sacrifice is gone. The water's gone. The altar's gone. Okay, and it was built of stone. How much fire do you need to burn stone to a place that it's gone? Gone, all of it just whoosh. And everybody knows. Okay. He's the winner. <laughs> There's no contest here. We don't need to go to the judges. I mean, this is, God is real. Baal is false. Yahweh is real. No question. And then Elijah prays for rain, and it rains. And at that point, you go, well, of course. I mean, we just saw him do this. Of course he can bring rain, right? But what's the point? And why does James bring up Elijah? Does he bring up Elijah to tell us the story of a guy who had so much more faith than we did, who was so much greater than us, who had this supernatural gifting of prayer that he was able to pray and God would do whatever Elijah wanted? Look again, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. This is what James wants to say. Listen to this story. Think about this story. There was nothing special about Elijah. Okay? The hero of this story is not Elijah. The hero is God. Elijah was just a regular guy, but he prayed. And he prayed how? Verse 17, he prayed fervently. What does that word mean? fervently. Fervently means with passion. Fervently means with with boldness and with expectation. When Elijah prayed, he asked for big, big things, and he expected God to do those big things. To ask for something with passion, with boldness, and with expectation, who does that? I'll tell you who does that. Kids. Children. When they're asking their parents for something, they ask fervently. They ask with boldness. Little kids don't come to their parents and say, Oh my great father, you are so wonderful. You are so amazing and I know I am nothing. If you're willing, father, 
If you would, if it's okay, if it's within your plan, if you've already been expecting and thinking about doing this, would you, if it's okay, would you please give me something? And if you don't, I'll be okay with it, and maybe you can comfort me and help me when I cry because I didn't get it, but I'm sorry for asking you, Father. That's not how your kids ask you for stuff. That's not how kids ask their parents for stuff, is it? Kids say, I want that. Please, maybe. Give me that. They're bold. And they expect it, don't they? They think, especially when they're very young, that you can give them anything they ask for. That their parents can give them whatever they want. When you were a little kid, you thought your parents could do anything. And so you ask them to do amazing and miraculous things just because you believed they could. And you just asked because they were your parents. Now, that changed as you got older, didn't it? It changed because, number one, you started to realize they couldn't do everything. And number two, you started to doubt whether they would give you everything you asked for. And so you learned to ask in different ways, sometimes more humbly, sometimes you just quit asking altogether. But when you're a little child, You don't have any of those filters. You just ask. What James is saying to us here is that that's the way we talk to God. That's the way we should talk to God. Not as the mature and sophisticated Christians we believe ourselves to be, who just want to layer our prayers with a whole bunch of our deep theology which is actually just a masquerade for, for our worries and our fears that he's not going to come through. James is telling us we need to go to God like little children and to just ask boldly and expectantly. Now, can we do that? I mean, this is God. Isn't that like extremely arrogant to approach God in that way? Isn't that like the opposite of humility? We've talked a bunch in the book of James about humility. Isn't this like totally counter to that idea? But look again at verse 16. In the second half, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A righteous person person. If you're like me, I look at that and I think, well, there's the problem. I'm not that righteous. But here's what we have to understand. We can approach God like little children with boldness and dependence and expectancy because we are his children because we are righteous, not on our own, but in Christ. Here's what I mean by that. When God looks at us, us who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in his sacrifice for our sins, when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous. Not because we are, but because Christ's righteousness covers us. The theological term for this is the imputation of his righteousness to us, and it simply means this, that when Jesus died, when he was sacrificed, when he was crucified, he took our sins on himself. And he who was perfect, who was completely and totally righteous, when he took our sins, he exchanged them for his righteousness. And when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, he sees Christ's righteousness. The prayer of a righteous person refers to us. Not because we are good on our own, 
but because we have Christ's righteousness covering us. And because we have his righteousness covering us, we are called the children of God. We are his children. And like children, we can go to him with boldness and with expectation and with belief that if we ask him, he will answer. And that's not arrogance because it's not based on anything about ourselves. It's actually the height of humility because it's us saying we are completely and totally dependent upon him. Like a small child who looks at his parent and says, I can do nothing on my own. I completely and totally need you for everything. And so I ask you for everything because I need everything from you. And that's how God invites us to come to him. In complete and total dependence, but boldly and expectantly. That's not magic words. When we say, in Jesus' name, we pray, it's not magic words. It's the truth of how we pray. Not in ourselves, and not by our own power. In the name of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness covers us, who allows us to go boldly to the Father, to His Father, to our Father. It's a reminder that we ask boldly only because we understand that we're totally dependent on Him. If we could wrap our minds around that, if we could get our eyes to actually view ourselves the way God sees us, if we could get a clear view of our identity in Christ, and we were emboldened to go before God as his children, what would we ask for? What would you ask for? If you could, this is the question you ask a little kid sometimes. If you could get any, if you could have anything, what would you ask for? Okay, as a little child, the child of the sovereign king of the universe, what would you ask for? What kind of healing are you afraid to ask for? Have you convinced yourself that it's not possible? And so I'm not even going to ask because I don't want to put it out there. And I'm certainly not going to ask anybody else to join into praying for that with me because I don't want anybody to know how much I wish for that because if it doesn't come through, I'll be embarrassed. What would you ask for? Physical healing? Is there a physical problem that you have been wrestling with? That you have been struggling against? And your prayers have become, God, please just help me manage it. Please just lessen the pain. Please just give me perseverance through this. Not that any of those are bad things, but what if you believed that you could actually boldly go to God and just ask him to heal you? Maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's a relational pain or relational illness. What relationship have you given up on and you've learned to pray and to ask God to just help you to deal with the effects of the brokenness of that relationship. Are you willing to believe God in such a big way that you will boldly ask him to just heal that relationship? Maybe it's internal. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's that habit, that thing that you have struggled against so hard for so long. And again, you've just gotten yourself into this idea that I'll never be perfect on this side of heaven, and so I'm just always going to struggle with this, and so I'm just going to continually pray for forgiveness. What if you went to God and boldly, like a child, in total dependence, knowing that on your own you have failed and failed and failed, what if you just boldly ask God, to heal you from that. 
for most of us, and I include myself in this, when it comes to prayer, our problem is not being too bold. My problem is not that I ask too big. I say that I believe in a God who is totally and completely all-powerful, all-knowing, totally sovereign over the entire universe. I read in 1 Kings about what he did for Elijah, and I say that I believe that story is true, that God did that. But I live my life functionally like God is a very limited being who can and will do only a few small tweaks here and there. If it were true that the God of the universe, the God who can send fire from heaven, the God who can withhold and send rain at at the snap of his finger, if it were true that you could draw near to that God, with confidence and with the intimacy of a child and with the expectation that he would hear you and that he would answer you, what would you ask him for? Here's what I want to do this morning. This is a little bit different than how we normally do this, but I want to ask two things. First off, Um, In the seat pockets in front of you, there are response cards. They were mentioned a couple times earlier in the service today. I want to ask, is there something big? And when I say big, I mean, maybe not fire from heaven, but in your life it's big. And you you haven't felt the freedom to ask boldly for God to move in that situation. You've held back, and you've learned to pray in a very kind of stilted or or, or kind of safe way. I want to ask, would you be willing to invite us, us being the leaders of, of Trailhead, to join you in praying big, boldly for God to move in a big, miraculous way in that situation? So we take those cards every week, um, and, and the leaders, and we keep it confidential, okay? This isn't, we don't publish this, this isn't on the website, this isn't, but, but among the leaders, we share those requests and we pray for those things. Is there anything that you would be willing to put down and say, this is big, and I just want to boldly, like a child, ask God to do this big thing, and would you invite us in to pray for, for that with you? Maybe there's something, the way James talks about it, a kind of a healing, and and it may be physical or it may be spiritual, I don't know what it is, but you'd like to invite the elders to pray with you. Would you write that on that card? And we've moved, normally our our response box is out in the foyer, but we brought it in, it's by the back door, and as you leave this morning, if you would just put that card in the response box, And we could join you in praying something big, something bold. Not just some kind of, you know, pain management. Big, bold prayers. The other thing I'm going to do this morning, if we're talking about prayer, I mean, we need to pray, don't we? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to take some time to pray over you. To offer you a prayer of Scripture to speak to you the words that tell you who God says you are in Christ. The things that we forget to be true, that we are his children, I want to pray those words over you. And I want to do this in a way that maybe this might seem a little awkward. Um, It might be a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. Because when you start doing and saying and praying big, bold prayers, that's going to be awkward. And that's going to get uncomfortable. And that's why, again, most of us shy away from it because it's just, it's just what if somebody hears what I'm praying for and it, what if, what if, what if? So, so we're going to take just the tiniest baby step of awkwardness this morning. Can you do that with me? Don't worry, everybody's going to do it, so you're not alone. 
And I'm even going to ask you to, to close your eyes so you can, nobody will see you being awkward, okay? Um, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray a blessing over you, and I'm going to ask you if you'll hold out your hands almost like a cup, like you're catching the blessing as it's spoken over you. That these words from Scripture, this is what God says about you, that you are accepting them, that you're catching hold of them, like you don't want them to pass you by because this is who God says you are. And as I read this scripture about who you are, who we are as believers in Christ, that you would catch every word of it. And then when I finish, that you would take it. And that you would say, this is me. And that as a symbol, and again, look, not magic words, not magic motions, nothing like that. Just as a symbol of this truth, that you would wash it over yourself. That you would say, this is true of me. And that we would all together, will say the word that means this is true and that word is amen. And the word amen is not, it's not magic. It's not a required word. But it is a word that says, I believe this. I take this and I accept this. And then all together, as we wash it over ourselves, we'll all together we'll say, amen. This is true. This is true of me. This is who God says I am. So if you're willing, um, I'd invite you to stand up. Hold out your hands. You can close your eyes. You can, you can bow your head down if you'd like. And as I speak these words, hear these words, believe these words are true about you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Believer, this is who God says you are. And if you believe and if you receive that to be true of yourself, then with me, would you please say, Amen. At this time, we're going to share communion together.